Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedal. Today I am joined by Robert Mixa of the Word on Fire Institute. Uh, Robert and I just finished a 20 minute or so conversation. We've never met until today. So great to meet you, Robert. Uh, I'm excited Likewise. to talk about Maximilian Colby and a bunch of other things today, but welcome to Creedal. Thanks for having me, Zach. Absolutely. No, excited to, to finally have you on. I've been reading your work from afar uh, quite a bit lately. Uh, we're going to talk today about Maximilian Colby and some other things. Uh, I know you're a big Colby fan, as really every Catholic should be, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, you're married to someone from Poland, so uh, Colby, I imagine, holds a very special place in the in the mix of family hearts. Um, but I'm excited to talk about all that today. Let's start here, though, Robert. Tell me a little bit more about your background. Were you born Catholic? Did you enter the Catholic faith later? And then what, what does the faith come to mean to you? I know that you've done a lot of work. And really, I guess I should probably actually read your, your bio before I do that. So let me just, let me do that. And then I'll, I'll and then I'll pitch it to you and you can tell me more. So, uh, Robert is the education fellow at the Word on Fire Institute working with Bishop Barron. And I'll, I'll ask him about some of the exciting things that are going on there on the education front. He studied philosophy at St. Louis university and then studied at the John, the pontifical John Paul II Institute at CUA Catholic university of America in Washington, DC, where he specialized, I think in biotechnology and correct me if that's wrong, Robert. Uh, uh, that's correct. All right, excellent. And then, uh, and then has done a lot of teaching, a lot of education, especially in high school theology and philosophy. And so that is why he's a great candidate for the education fellow position at the World on Fire Institute. That's what he does now. Uh, and I should also mention he's, he's working with, with Bishop Barron for a long time, for years now, I think, going all the way back to Mundelein Seminary before Bishop Barron was a household name in Catholic circles uh, and uh, was also involved, I think, in the Catholicism series, which you may have seen. It's one of Bishop Barron's earliest film works. Uh, and a great film overview of the faith, if you haven't seen it already. So anyway, if I got any of that wrong, Robert, please correct me. But uh, otherwise, welcome to Creedle. No, no, that was, that was a great description. Yeah, I grew up on the south side of uh, of Chicago, uh, born and raised in a Catholic family. But, you know, we it wasn't until I was, like, going to be confirmed that I started taking the faith seriously. But uh, just continue to grow and develop um, through the high school years. And then, you know, um, I met... I decided I wanted to study philosophy pretty much, though, to kind of better understand aspects of the faith. Uh, then I met Bishop Barron right around the time I was graduating, uh, and that was that. So uh, I've I've been kind of involved my whole, like, post-college career with Word on Fire, and it's it's been a great blessing. It's been really cool to see Word on Fire just grow as a ministry. I've only been Catholic for six years. I didn't give you a whole lot of my background before we hit the record button, Robert. But and my listeners have heard it before. But just very briefly, uh, raised Protestant, sort of evangelical, floated around between across various denominations, and then in 2015 uh, entered the fullness of communion uh, into the Catholic Church at the Easter Vigil. So six years. Uh, and I can't really say that Word on Fire was pivotal to me in my journey, just because I didn't, I hadn't really discovered it and didn't really know about it. Um, had a, had a few people mention it to me offhand, but have since come to understand that this is a, a major resource for people in their paths of conversion, reversion, and it's just really cool to see that see that bear so much fruit. There are some other ministries like it, but I think it and some other ones that have been doing that work for you know ten, fifteen years have really proved like. Uh, provided a good model for lots of other ministries that are continuing in that mold and just trying to do the work of the new evangelization, you know, carrying out, carrying it out with a new urgency, I think in the past, like I said, 10, 15 years, um, you know, long after JP two called for it, I think now we're really taking up the mantle and, and trying to yeah. make it a reality, which is really cool. And it's neat to see Word on fire, continue to do that and just keep growing and, and having broader reach and, uh, and all that. So thanks for your work there. Oh, no, it's, it's been a great, uh, privilege to be a part of this. And uh, yeah, it is something to see how it's grown. 
I mean, when I first met Bishop Barron, I mean, he he was just working on the ten part uh, Catholicism series, and he was Father and Barron, of course. He not was Bishop Father Barron, yeah. yeah. And I remember, I mean, my mom was like, "Oh, he's." This guy, this great homilist, is going to show up on the south side, and he's got these homilies on, I think it was like Relevant Radio, then before that WGN in the morning. Um, and uh, he was just a, such a inspiration to me. I remember when his first talk, it was uh, on St. Irenaeus, and I think all of these like freshman undergrads showed up, and he was expecting grad students. So, Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it, but he was great. Uh because uh, he just played a pivotal role, he needed some help. So I got in, yeah. I got involved right away, and it's been it's been a delight to see how it's grown. That's great. And so you're the education fellow now. Maybe give it give yeah. me a little teaser. I'll, I'll ask you at the end, sort of how people can get more involved and find out more about what's going on. But give me a little teaser of some things you're working on at the Word on Fire Institute now as the education fellow. Yeah. So um, right now, I mean, the, the Word on Fire Institute's rather uh, rather new. Um, and uh, I'm working on uh, what's it's going to be like an education module for Catholic teachers, uh, primarily at the high school level, but this would also include elementary level, to basically help them better not only understand the faith, but also certain strategies to effectively teach it. Uh, but the goal is kind of to transform Catholic education um, from within. So this is going to be I, I was really inspired by the work of uh, Stratford Caldecott uh, when I was in grad school, and I've always had this desire to kind of like really not dumb down the faith and and bring out the full potential that's within the Catholic educational tradition. Um, I went through Catholic education um, almost all of my life, and I've kind of been a little bit disappointed, and but I've seen what what could be there. Uh, so uh, I just am really happy to be. Uh, doing the work for the Word on Fire Institute, helping other teachers not only kind of see that potential, understand the faith, uh, but also to really kind of ignite that fire within their students and primarily their parents uh, to really like form the next generation. That's awesome. I didn't realize that you were uniquely inspired by the work of Stratford Caldecott. Um, oh, I yeah. did not. I did not know Stratford personally. Um, I do know his daughter personally. And, um, and he sort of played, uh, I don't know, in a way there was something, something spiritual going on because when I was in England, my, my wife and I, we were becoming Catholic. That was when Stratford was in the final stages of his terminal cancer. Um, and though we had not met him, everyone in our sort of Catholic circle as we were becoming Catholic knew him quite well. And his, his quiet suffering and ultimately death was just such a testimony to the grace of God in a, in a unique and, you know, counterintuitive way. Um, and so it was really, it was really interesting coming into the church while we had friends who's in, in his daughter's case, her father, where their you know mentor or something was, was passing away from cancer, but he left behind is this absolute legacy of, you know, Catholic education of thinking about Catholic philosophy and beauty in the world, uh, that really left an impressive mark on so many people that he knew. Oh yeah. Um, I, I remember picking up his book, uh, was it beauty for truth's sake? That was my first encounter with him. And I'm like, oh, wow. Um, talk about really finding seeds of the word everywhere. I mean, that, nothing was off limits for that guy. Um, and he kind of had that, that vision, that true Catholic vision, where like everything finds its honing point in the incarnate yeah. God yeah. Uh, that so kind of inspired me. And so I, I've, I've kind of been a little shocked since I've been involved in education, how few people know about him. 
Um, but uh, I've been in touch with Dr. Roy Peachy, who's a great, great, um, he's kind of, he has a book called, um, I think, uh, Out of the Classroom and Into the World, which is kind of a practical application of Stra- uh, Stratford Caldecott's vision. Oh, okay. Nice. He's an Englishman himself. Um, but, uh, he, you know, there's just so much potential there. And um, I really do feel like what you said John Paul II was calling for right. um, is finally finding um, finding root. Yeah, so I'm not familiar with Dr. Apici's name. I'm glad that um, there are others who are doing this good work. But I'm not surprised to hear you say that he's an Englishman. Yeah. Um, Roger Scruton, who was not a, not a Catholic, um, uh, you know, he, he talked a lot about a philosophy of beauty, you know, and, and to him, aesthetics meant so much. And there's something about this is a, this is really kind of a half baked idea that I've tossed around before. And I was not planning on discussing uh, today with you. But since since it came up, let's just go here. Uh, I have this this idea that there's something distinctly and sort of more fundamentally Christian about so much of Europe compared to America. And I don't mean that in a social sense necessarily. Um you know, there are many ways in which uh, in which Europe is is much more uh, humanist and sort of anti-God than even America, although maybe that's not quite the same, not quite true anymore. Um, but but just walking around England when we live there, um, you know, houses are so close together. There's a much stronger sense of community. There's a much, much stronger sense of, uh, you know, incarnational living. And then maybe most importantly, like there is an emphasis on beauty that just isn't isn't quite shared in America. You know, you walk and maybe I was sort of biased, like living in Oxford, but walking around this place with Gothic spires towering everywhere over the city. And you can walk into any college at any on any evening and you can be treated to even songs sung by the, you know, the the, the boys choir of that specific college, et cetera. And you're just you're just surrounded by beauty everywhere. And and there there are places like that you know on American campuses, but it's more common that you'll like you'll just encounter this like brutalist statist architecture at a standard state school that prides itself on excelling in you know the science, technology, engineering, and math um, rather than the liberal arts, rather than the pursuit of beauty. Well, it's and so like, there's, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I I sympathize with everything you're saying. I mean, it's the same experience I had. I went to Spain as a, a sophomore in college, and that was kind of part of my my religious reawakening in a way, because I'm like, you know, in every nook and cranny, I mean, um, it's like a real incarnate religion. And even if you're, when you meet like a European atheist, they're much more like, like you said, sometimes hostile to the faith, but you know, that's almost a good thing because you know, it's there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, whereas kind of here, sometimes you get this like, it's like indifferentism. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's hard to escape. I mean, it's like, Christianity just haunts that place, even if they try to leave it, and they end up recreating it. But like you said, Roger Scruton, man, was he, uh, he's a pivotal influence on me as well. Oh, um, wow, yeah. I actually, I, I remember I emailed him once, uh, and he responded within two hours. Wow, I that's had, cool. That's you know, really I, cool. Yeah, I know he, he was being awarded by the Polish president, and I told him I had a Polish wife, and he got me in touch with all of his the uh, people wow. out in Poland, but wow. he, 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 yeah, to me, he, Andrew Petterprin, who was one of your former guests, uh, Andrew and I talk about Roger Scruton all the time. And, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like he, he got it. He really yeah. got it. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I like your reference too that it's that Christianity sort of haunts Europe because maybe that's a good way of putting it. And it reminds me of Flannery O'Connor's line about how, mm. um, the South may not have been, um, Christ, it, what was her? I forget the exact verbiage. It may not have been Christian, but it was certainly Christ haunted or something to that effect. Yeah. I know she says it was certainly Christ haunted. 
Um, and, and, and she, by me, by saying that she meant, you know, that you can see echoes of Christianity throughout, even if there are, there are perversions of it here and there are perversions of it there. And there are certainly people who don't live up to its ideals and all that, but it's, it's haunted by Christ. And I think the same is true of Europe in a way that just doesn't, doesn't apply to so much of America. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, this may be controversial, but I really do think America is still a land that needs to be evangelized. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, I, I don't think there's anything controversial. Oh man, I guess it's controversial to uh, to atheists who think we should never be in the business of evangelization in general. But yeah, uh, yeah it's it's certainly not controversial to this audience. Yeah, but but in in the sense too of like look at if you look at the city, you'll get the sense if the incarnate word has been proclaimed and structuring all things um, because it's when you look at those European cities, you can't help but think this is a humane way of living right um yeah where it's like ultimately liturgical in the end yes so um yeah yeah and so i mean take washington dc for example um you know the 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 structural limits on how high a building can be are not Mm -hmm. set by the national cathedral Mm -hmm. Uh, they're set by the washington monument and the capitol building right or you go into the rotunda of the capitol building you you go into it and you look up there's not there's not a picture of Jesus, you know, the <laughs> separation of say, church and yeah. state would be the would be the standard rallying cry. We could we could you know go into sort of the, the problematic ways that's interpreted. But yeah. what you do see on the rotunda is George Washington. It's like the apotheosis of Washington, and so George Washington <laughs> is becoming God, not in a sort of a uh, you know Athanasius uh, divinization sense, but rather like Washington himself is becoming <laughs> becoming God. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's definitely that, some evangelization work to be done. <laughs> yeah, the Washington. Yeah, sometimes when you really think about the um, uh, monuments and the uh, architectural meaning, uh, I kind of get a little scared when I see that. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, well, let's shift gears and talk about our main focus. To, well, what was going to be going to be our main focus? We'll see where the conversation takes us. But you wrote recently about uh, Saint Maximilian Kolbe. Uh, a, a Polish priest who gave his life to save another in Auschwitz, the concentration camp. Uh, and you wrote about this in the context of a film. Uh, and I'm a big film buff, as my listeners know. And the film is called Life for Life, uh, directed by uh, a Polish um, movie director uh, named Krzysztof Zanussi. And Life for Life tells the story of Colby through the lens of various people who were with him in the camp and saw him. And most particularly through the lens of the prisoner who escaped, who was then sort of the indirect cause of Colby's death. Um, and so I'll let you sort of explain the circumstances there um, and tell us more about Maximilian Colby. And then I can ask you a few more questions about the film and about the life of Maximilian Colby. Yeah. Um, like you said, the movie, the movie begins with the escape of the prisoner who, uh, as a consequence of that, uh, 10, 10 prisoners are sent to the, the starvation bunker. Um, uh, one of whom is, uh, uh, Maximin Colby, who takes the place of, of I think his name is Franciszek uh, Grajomniski. Can never. I was not going to try to pronounce that. <laughs> well, I, I practiced with my wife this yeah. morning, and uh, I think ten attempts weren't weren't enough. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, he took the place of 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 uh, Franciszek, um, knowing that he was a father um, and a husband. Uh, and he didn't even give his name. He just said he was a Catholic priest. And so there was this, uh, the movie kind of explores um, the aftermath of that and trying to figure out whether indeed it was uh, Maximilian Kolbe who, who took the place of this man. 
Um, and the movie just gets into, I mean, well, I'll hold off on the movie for a second, but Maximilian Colby, this wasn't really surprising to anyone that it was him because, you know, his whole life was just one endless self gift. He was basically a, a martyr, if you want to say, in terms of giving witness to the faith yeah. of this total self-surrendering love his whole life. Um, you know, uh, Colby, Colby just has, I mean, if you really want to know, like have a model for a great entrepreneur, uh, it's Maximilian Colby. That man did so much in his li- yeah. short lifetime. Um, he, he, I think, uh, excelled at physics. Then he got a PhD in philosophy, then in theology, mm-hmm. Then he he started a you know magazine in Poland, um, and then he went off to go found something in Shanghai. Then went to Japan, then to India, yeah. then back to Poland and founded Amazing. this monastery. Yeah, and he, and he, he, did, he did most of this with with essentially one functioning lung because tuberculosis had left him with yeah. basically one good lung too. It's just, it's incredible. It really is. I mean, and the movie gets into this too, mm-hmm. like. For him to survive as long as he did in in yeah. the bunker was just miraculous. Um, but yeah, I mean that guy was. I mean, for, tough. for him to survive that long in Auschwitz in general was miraculous. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that he made it that far, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. I remember my first the first time I saw Maximilian Kolbe, I was like, oh man, that kind of looks that guy looks kind of stern. I mean, most most saints kind of have that stern look, and I know mm-hmm. pictures, you know, other than Americans, um, maybe. Um, when yeah. people, people don't really smile for photos in the past, right. but, uh, he, um, he, he was just tough and just good. Um, and the movie, the movie does a wonderful job of getting into that, how everybody kind of admired him for this. Uh, but he didn't have this kind of like finger wagging Catholicism, but he, he, he took on himself. He really imitated Christ throughout his life. Um, so like, I don't know if you want to hear like a little bit of the history of how I came to know about Maximilian Kolbe. Oh, please. Yeah, um, let's do that. Well, you know, I mean, Chicago is such a Polish place. Uh, so you're going to always get your, you know, a litany of Polish saints um, there. And, um, you know, I I was always kind of um, impressed by the guy um, when I was young. But uh, when I met my wife, I finally really started to learn more about him. Um, she's, like you said, she's from Poland. And... Um, it wasn't until like I was when I was graduating. Um, you know, how sometimes you like you hear your whole life about things that Catholics believe in, but you don't. It takes like an experience to actually realize well what that means. Sure. Um, yeah. So I never really had a sense of like inter- the intercession of the saints mm. um, until I remember at the John Paul II Institute, uh, one of the guys there, Nick um, Bellagio, told me because I was looking for a job and you know I was kind of worried. I was newlywed. I thought everything was going to kind of work out. And he's like, you know what? The greatest intercessor is Maximilian Kolbe. Oh, pray wow. to him. Yeah, yeah, pray to him. Maximilian Kolbe and St. Joseph. And um, the funny thing was, uh, so I started doing this. And then I got a job. Um, and right where the job was, was next to Marytown, um, oh, which yeah. is the national shrine of Maximilian Kolbe. Uh, that's in Libertyville, um, yep. Illinois. And so, you know, being a part of Marytown, uh, I really came to appreciate uh, Father Maximilian Colby even more. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, he he is such a great saint, and if you're looking for a good intercessor, I I encourage you to to pray to him. 
Yeah, and he uh, he had a particularly strong devotion to the Blessed Virgin. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know the history of Marytown. Was it named Marytown because it's his shrine, or did they put the shrine there because it's Marytown? Either way, he'd love the name because that's what that was I, his singular devotion. Yeah, I I do think it has something to do with. I I couldn't yeah. tell you the exact history. I know Marytown was at first. Um, it was a um, I think a convent of um, okay Benedictine nuns. Wow. Um, but then the conventional Franciscans took it over. I think in the seventies, and it became it became Marytown. Makes so it, I think it's yeah, it's the national shrine outside of Nepokolanov, which is the monastery mm-hmm. he founded out in Poland. I think it's one of the only centers that um, is a shrine like that. Wow. To, to okay. Him. So yeah, and so I've seen that that name right. Nepol. What, what was it that you just said? Yeah, Nepokolanov. Um. Okay. Oh gosh, I think it has to be. I think it's the. Oh, my wife is going to be really mad. I don't know. <laughs> Disappointed. This. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's like uh, it. It does. It reference the. It references the Virgin Mary. I think but, it is um, something like Marytown, isn't it? In Polish. Well, yeah, Nepokolanov. I think like without the immaculate one, the okay, immaculate okay, yeah. one. So. Yeah, yeah, but that that's was his right. community that he founded, and he had this ex- this extreme devotion to the. I don't mean extreme in a bad way, obviously, but this this mm-hmm. very strong extreme devotion to the Blessed Virgin. And um, one of the things that he did, you you alluded to this uh, in your sort of description of his his accomplishments, but he started this militia, which was not a militia in the earthly sense, but a militia mm-hmm. in the uh, in the mission evangelization and intercession sense, the militia of the Immaculata. And this, I forget exactly what the numbers were, but I think it grew to over a million in his lifetime, at least close to it, uh, and still continues today, by the way. I think there are four million members of the Militia of the Immaculata uh, yeah. throughout the world. There's a, There are a lot in Europe, obviously, um, especially Poland, I would imagine. Um, but they just did they, so, they did so much work and, and had, a, had multiple newspapers translated in multiple languages with circulations yeah. in the hundreds of thousands as well. All while he's, you know, doing doing this with one lung and, and uh, you know, f- fighting, the, fighting the Nazis, not, again, not literally, but hiding hiding jews who are running from the nazis and everything obviously it ultimately cost him his life but it his his life is such a case study in in charity and one of the things we can talk about the movie in a sec but one of the things i liked about your article is that you um you argue that that this is that that his ultimate act of life or greater love has no one than this that a man lay down his life for his friends that's what Colby did. And even more so, Colby didn't do it for his friend. He didn't lay down his life for his friend. He laid down his life for a fellow campmate who who couldn't face the horrors of Auschwitz. And so Maximilian yeah. Colby said, I'll do it. And and you articulate this in your article that it is divine grace alone that allows us to do this. Mm-hmm. And then you quote, oh, let me look at the article exactly to find find this quote because it was really good. Um, but it was, uh, and I'm looking for it now and I can't find it. But you'll know what I'm talking about because um, you were quoting a thinker who, who said that basically if, if the gospel is even proven by one story, then it's true. Henri de Lubach. Yeah. Yes. It was de Lubach. That's what it was. Um, I'm trying to think of the exact. I, I just found it. One deed okay. alone where the living gospel asserts itself is sufficient to justify the gospel forever. Yeah. And yeah, let me read that one more time. One deed alone where the living gospel asserts itself is sufficient to justify the gospel forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- there's a lot to meditate on that, just in that in that passage alone, that one sentence. But your assertion is that Colby made this act in Auschwitz. That Colby Colby's act is is one deed where the living gospel asserts itself. This this gospel that that upholds the weak. This gospel that proclaims it is a just and heroic thing to lay down 
your life for one's friend, despite receiving nothing in return, despite uh, potentially being condemned to anonymity for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Colby obviously had no idea he was going to be a saint. He didn't go to, as you mentioned, he didn't go to his death saying, "It's it, my name is Maximilian Colby, make sure this gets back to the Pope right, <laughs> for my eventual beatification and canonization. No, yeah. he just said, I'm a Catholic priest, right? He, I, I imagine he fully expected to die in anonymity. Um, and, and he still did it. He still yeah. volunteered his life. Well, I mean, in him, you really see what deification looks like by the cross. I mean, it's like, you know, I know there was controversy whether or not he was actually a martyr. Um, he eventually was deemed to be a martyr of, of charity, I believe. But in Similar him, to Edith Stein, by the way. Yeah. Is, you know, in, in very similar situation, dying in a concentration camp, right? But is this a person, is this person really a martyr if they didn't say, like, I believe in Jesus, and then that's why they were killed yeah. you know, directly? But yeah, a martyr of charity is a... Definitely an apt description. But what I like about in this movie is it shows like in him, you see the passion. You see Christ pouring himself out in total self-gift um, and taking the place of of the one who should be the one yeah. who's punished, right? Um, throughout the movie, you, you just see the kind of juxtaposition of the of the Eucharist in some ways with, with the act uh, uh, that, that Colby um, – you know, um, shows. Yeah. And, uh, I like your point too, um, that, you know, the, the person who, the, the prisoner who Colby replaced, uh, not a super attractive person in the film. Like he, he comes across as like rather weak willed and just, yeah. just not a likable person. He's kind of squealing whole... like a pig. I yeah, mean, exactly. in some way yeah. it's, yeah, it is pathetic. Yeah, it is pathetic. Yeah. It's a good word for it. Uh, and Colby steps up and and says, I'll go instead. And then, you know, so you, you, you mentioned Colby's uh, credentials prior to this. I don't know what the credentials of the person he replaced are, but probably not as impressive as Colby's from a just sheer pedigree standpoint. But the gospel doesn't, you know, the, the gospel is the gospel irrespective of how many PhDs you have and how, how well you did in physics, right? And, yeah. and what, what, how many printing presses you ran, et cetera. Uh, the gospel isn't about any of those things, and Colby shows us that very well. Yeah. Uh, there's one line in the movie when... Um, it's like why why would he lay his life down for mm-hmm. like a stranger like this? And I think it's the carpenter who knew Colby very well says he he understood the he understood that all life comes from God and all yeah. life is digni- is is full of dignity. And yeah. so um you see too that Colby because of his faith he he sees things in a different light. Um I mean I don't know if you want to get into the movie, but the uh, but let's do it, yeah. Okay, but the main character of the movie is played by Christoph Waltz. Okay, his name's Jan. I don't know if you guys know Christoph Waltz. He's one of my favorite actors on the scene today. Um, he's famous from uh, Tarantino's uh, Inglorious, Inglorious Bastards. Bastards yeah. yeah, he's in several Tarantino movies. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, but he's just a he's a great actor, and I I believe Zanussi because this he's rather young in this film mm-hmm. and. Um, I I I've heard Zanussi, the director, say to him, you know, just just wait. Some you'll be you'll, eventually somebody's going to discover you on the international scene, and you're going to be a star. Oh, and wow. that did turn out to be the case. Yeah. Um. But he plays this role very well of of Jan just trying to run away, not only from like the Nazis, but from the love of Colby. Um. The very first scene is of this. Uh, German shepherd going to retrieve a stick in the muck. And I, to me, it just it hit me as like a metaphor for the whole film. Yeah. Uh, 
the the dog in some ways is like the hound of God, right? The hound of the Lord who's after the one who's stuck in the muck. And then the next scene after retrieving the muck, Jan somehow comes out of the dirt, arises. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, that's right. But the whole time, I mean, he he's kind of he does it on his own terms, right? He he gets out himself. And so I think he thinks the whole of life is just survival. The survival uh there's nothing like, you know, um providence uh yeah. there is no such yeah, thing it's random as, it's nietzschean about you know just self-will and strength yeah life is absurd um just a little side note i mean zanussi christoph zanussi does such a good job with this film i think because he has a philosophy background zanussi mm. i know he studied philosophy at the Jagellonian, and so all of his films oh, wow. kind of are are dealing with these existential questions but um yeah, I mean the whole film is it's great it's great because Jan is curious to see well okay who was this guy? Uh this is out of the ordinary. Nobody would have done this in Auschwitz. Everybody knows right. that. Um and so he's also though kind of he's haunted by this this great he is, act. that's what I was going to say. Yeah, because he's running from it but he also can't stop talking about it. And there's I think there are there's one or two scenes where someone's like why do you care about this so much? Like why do you care about this priest so much? You keep asking me. Why do you keep talking about him? Yeah. And you see the very the very uh, last I don't want to give away the movie but uh he he really regrets what he 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 did. Mm-hmm. Uh you'll see that he never he never gets married. And there's one scene when you know some woman says, you know, oh you should get you should get uh you should find you a wife like yeah. me. And he says, "Oh, I'm not even worthy of that." Mm-hmm. Uh but right after that he encounters Colby again, and yeah. he finally gets on his knees. And you have this Wojciechowski soundtrack. I don't know if you guys know him, the great Polish composer. I didn't know um, that's who it was. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's but cool. he's kind of it's this pounding beat that is just kind of like pressing in. Like he, the the love is confronting him, and he's fi- he finally accepts it. Yeah. And in some ways, falls you can to his see. Knees. Yeah, falls to his knees, and it's like he's he's finally healed. He 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 has this encounter. He is no longer going to see himself probably as this, you know, um, worm of the earth who has, you know, caused the death of of ten people. Um, but uh, I, I just thought it was all so wonderfully done, and that's why I chose this film uh, at the start of this Christian states of life class that I had to teach. Because um, I'm like, who do we see this whole? Who do we see this whole thing? Yeah. This this way of life embodied in, but the saints. And I thought Maximilian Colby was somebody who would only be good for the students because I was teaching at a school across from Marytown. So I wanted them to then yeah, have yeah. a special encounter with Colby. And I think the film did the job. That's awesome. I'm glad the students liked it. Um, yeah. One other thing I'll add about the film, at least if I understood this part correctly, you know, the, Jan, the prisoner who escapes, is trying to figure out, as are others, who the person was who Colby saved. And we find out that that person died in the camp, right? Um, Fran, uh, Fra- uh, Yeah, isn't Franciszek the one who died? Um, you know, I think that's a. Remember, he's having like a meal with the guy, um, who also like um was liberated. This is after the war, and the one guy thinks, oh, um, it could have been him. Yeah. Um, and remember, he he ate the food too quickly, and I think died yes. because of that. Yes. And yes. It, it wasn't. It was that wasn't the guy. I oh, think, that wasn't the guy. Okay. I don't gotcha. think so. I mean, I believe. I'm just no. I only know this, and I think I think this might be right. 
because of my Polish wife. Uh, but the Franciszek, I think, was with like John Paul II at the canonization. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't I realize think, that. Yeah, because it says, I think, later that he went on to be like a, a soldier of some kind. Um, okay. So, yeah, but I'll have to check. I'm, I'm not yeah, yeah. completely no, sure so, on that. So maybe I just misunderstood that because the, it is true that the person who th- he said it might have been this guy, that guy ends up dying. That guy but dies, the interesting thing yeah. to me is that doesn't actually affect the uprightness or the goodness of Colby's action, right? So it's not just like mm-hmm. he saved this person who went on to cure cancer or to you know who went on to do this other thing. He saved this person and that was fundamentally a good thing. Even if that even if that person would die the next day, right? Because that person is a human who has inherent dignity who's who's worth saving. And yeah. so so it doesn't really matter who it was that he saved, right? It's not that it's not he didn't save him because of his credentials or because of you know what he would go on to do. He saved him because he was a human being yeah. worthy of being saved. Um, and I thought that was a, another good reflection of the film. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, yeah, I think I'll I'll just have to go back and see. Um, I didn't I didn't know that we knew who the person was who was saved, but that's uh, that's amazing if he was there for the canonization. Um, I I believe so. And yeah. you know what you said too about the um, um, kind of utilitarian logic of it. I mean, you see in the movie, the, there's a journalist uh, who's a communist yeah. who yes, was right. in the camp as well. I mean, yep. he's one of my favorite characters in the film because. I mean, this film doesn't though go to like any any thought you may have why Colby did this thing. Like you know, maybe he just wanted to be well known. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was mentally deranged or a yep. lunatic of some kind, or maybe the church just wants to find its saint. You yeah, know, that, that came some political cause. That yeah, yeah. Uh, the movie explores those areas, and it kind of all those all those types of answers come up it's short. Flat. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, you know, I remember at one point the journalist, uh, you know, he's talking, his wife is saying, well, you know, can you not believe that a man like him do such a thing? And he expresses his hatred for the church. And she says, well, you're so prejudiced. And what if he did it for you? And he's like, I can't believe that the devil, what does he say? Something along the lines of the devil would just allow somebody to take the place of somebody else. Um mm-hmm. And then he like looks up and kind of real. I I always imagine he's looking at the cross that possibly yeah. is in the house, yeah. recognizing the you know the thing that he just said. Yeah. Um, but the uh, communists they they don't want him publishing this because they just want it to seem like you know they want him to publish something on a, on somebody dying for like a liberal cause. Yes, yes, like exactly. A, a teacher dying for. His or her student, or a doctor for the patient, or something else, and he's like, "I know nothing." I'm like, "I'm not saying that those things don't exist," but the guy says, "I know I'd be fabricating something." Yeah, Uh, this thing really happened. He's like, "We don't have those." Yeah, yeah, and you see in like the history, even in communism, later in Polish history, with uh, figures like Popiuszko, Father Popiuszko, they don't want those those acts of like of total love. Um, to get out, to get out. They 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 want to tell a different narrative, but yeah. in the end, you know, um, only love prevails. So yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah, it's a good film, and I haven't mentioned this, but if you want to see the film, go to form.org. You can find it there. It's not on Netflix, not on Prime Video, unless you. I think you can rent it through Prime. But if you want to see it for free, go to form.org. Your parish likely has a subscription. If not, I think there's a way you can get a a subscription for free through form.org. So just go to form.org. It's called Life for Life. Um, I will also say, you know, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't play out like a, like a modern 20th century American film. It's pretty slow paced, um, 
heavy on dialogue, even heavier on sort of slow moving uh, scenes without much dialogue. Uh, and it's all black and white. The translations are, it's a Polish film, so it's made in, in Polish. There's uh, obviously German in the, in the scenes in the camps, um, but there are subtitles. Uh, and um, yeah, so it's just, you know, it's, it's going to be different and different experience than the more recent films of the modern cinema, but cinema, but that's not a bad thing. It's, it's a good film and definitely worth watching. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's shift gears just a little bit, although it's not really shifting gears. I think it's more just uh, kind of put a nightcap on this as we wrap up this conversation, Robert, um, what can we learn from Maximilian Colby about the call to holiness? And I like to end a lot of my conversations on this, um, as, as you and I were talking before we hit the record button, uh, the call to holiness is something that, um, is, I think only beginning to be fully understood, um, uh, mm-hmm. by certainly American Catholics, probably global Catholics though. Um, you know, this is something, uh, St. Jose Maria obviously talked a lot about the universal call to holiness. Um, the council fathers of the second Vatican council talked about this. Uh, and I think for, for many decades, their words fell on deaf ears, but, but we're starting to see a return to the call to holiness. I'm not saying that people weren't holy in the intervening years. Obviously we have some great saints who really took seriously the call to holiness, but uh, I think there's in part because of this new media, uh, new evangelization effort that we were talking about a few minutes ago, uh, there's a renewed emphasis, a renewed push, a renewed understanding of what the universal call to holiness looks like and how we live it out in our in our every day. And in a time when we are so tempted to just get caught up in all of the uh, all the various movements of the world, political movements and social movements and even ecclesiastical movements, uh, you know, just just sort of going to war with um, going to war with others in the church and acting like like every every issue is one that we need to be heard on and we need to blog about and vlog about and podcast about. And maybe I'm guilty of this as well, but you know, rather than doing that, I think there's, there's slowly, but surely there's an understanding that we need to be emphasizing our own holiness. We need to be walking the path of Christ. Um, so in the context of the life of Maximilian Colby, uh, what can we learn from him, from this film, from, from his life, from his example? Yeah. You know, um, as I said about martyrdom, kind of this embodying of the passion, which is this becoming becoming Christ, like fully one with the Son. Um, I think that Maximilian Kolbe, in the sense that by becoming one with the Son, he was just totally in relation, you know, to the Father. I see holiness um, as this this longing, this total self surrender, um, self gift uh, to God in the Son, through the Spirit, to the Father, um, that Maximilian Kolbe, uh, just his whole existence was caught up in the Spirit like that. And he became, he became Christ, Christ-like. Um, and all of us are called to that, um, all of us, and not just the you know religious or priests, um, but everyone. And I think that what Vatican II was calling for uh in the modern world was was this kind of um and the new evangelization is saying hey you know we're supposed to become as christians we're becoming sons of the sun we're we're it's all relation it's all relation it, we're in the divine life that's what christianity is all about yeah and maximilian colby's uh the very the, the act that we know him most for just it's not like some spontaneous thing that came out of nowhere. It was just the further, it was just the logic that he was living. His whole life. He couldn't do anything but that. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I know you talked to Dr. Larry Chapp an awful lot about the mm-hmm. call to holiness, and he's he's great on this with uh, Dorothy Day and Peter Maron and the Catholic Worker. Um, but for me, you know, I know a lot of people, when I have this tendency myself, when you become Catholic, you just want to go out there and, like, it almost becomes about you, um, where you're like, okay, I'm just going to tweet to the world uh, yes. and try to get as many followers as possible and tell everyone about my experience and all that yeah. stuff. And you, you forget that, no, it's actually not about you. It's about Christ right. and what he's done for everyone. Uh, and I remember I met some professors that Dr. Larry Chap knows as well at the John Paul II Institute. And I have to say they're some of the holiest men and women I've, I've ever met in my whole life. Um, there was just something authentically holy about them. That's and awesome. that, that was so attractive. Yeah. And yeah, they weren't on Twitter. They weren't on all the social media. And that's, that's a calling for some people, you know. Um, but they discerned their calling, I think, rightly. And that was that, that they followed their vocation. And that, that was extremely attractive. So yeah, I'm, and this is, this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you're talking about because in today's world, you know, with pra- practical atheism, we, we, we oftentimes say we believe in God, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, our actions indicate otherwise. Yeah. No, yeah. really. I mean, I'm, I'm so embarrassed oftentimes how oftentimes I, I exist as if God doesn't exist. Yeah. I, I mean, I live my life in a way that my priorities aren't the ones, uh, that uh, the the faith calls for, and I have a hard time seeing my brother as uh you know a brother in the Lord. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, it's that's uh, that's well said. And the problem with practical atheism is, I think, um, it's it's one that's pervasive. It's totally pervasive. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I just think you know we have an adoration chapel down the street, and I go there weekly. I have a weekly commitment there. Uh, if I, you know, like if my priorities were in order, I would go. In addition to that, you know, when I had free time, I wouldn't, you know, sit here and waste my time watching a Marvel movie or whatever. I would probably go to adoration, right? And so there's an element of practical atheism that guides even the most uh, the, the most simple of my choices and just how I spend my time. Um, and so you're right. I, I frequently live, I make choices as if God did not exist, or at the very least, you know, in that he didn't exist in the way that I claim to believe he exists, right? And so I think we always have to be on our guard about that. And I think we have to be extra vigilant. Your, your mention of these professors who were not on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, who didn't have big social platforms. I think that's really on point. And I'm not saying social platforms are inherently. Well, for sure. You, Max you, and Colby not, would probably take advantage of this. What he'd probably it, what have a Twitter provide. account. Yeah. yeah he, I he'd mean, probably have I, a blue check on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> so um, no, so it's not that they're bad, but it's that they certainly can be stumbling blocks of holiness. And, yeah. you know, speaking for myself, I can say that uh, I, I have a Twitter account. And I have actually also, I also have a, you know, a, a Twitter sports account that's mostly consumption only because I like sports and I sort of follow various, you know, sports beat writers and everything. But, you know, I have a, I have a Twitter account for more current events and Catholic things and I don't check it because, uh, checking it does not, I found for me personally, does not increase my holiness, does not lead me to sanctity. And so what I'll do is, you know, when I release a new episode like this one, for example, I'll probably post it on Twitter uh, so that people who do follow me can see it. But I, I'm not interested in extended discussions. I'm not interested in debates on Twitter. I'm certainly not interested in scrolling my timeline 
what do they call it? Doom scrolling, right? Which is pretty apt because it just it gives you a sense of doom about everything going on <laughs> in the church and in the world when you could just be praying uh, and, mm-hmm. and trying to grow in holiness and leading your children to Christ uh, and all of those things. So uh, I appreciate that you mentioned social media because I think we do need to be really careful about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd be a hypocrite if I, 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 I am the worst with checking out things on social media. I mean, so I don't want to come off like, um, you know, I'm, I'm immune from any. No, no, you're, I, you, you didn't come across that way. I just think that you're, you're correct in, in sort of diagnosing that, 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 that needs to be a part of our self-evaluation. You know, how, how is, yeah. how is, how are my internet habits leading me towards or away from God? So. Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, with, with all, because this uh, permeates most of our lives, um, yeah. you know, and so thinking about holiness uh, in light of this stuff is, is really important. Yeah, totally agree. Well, as we, as we do close, since we're out of time, Robert, you're the education fellow at World on Fire Institute. You mentioned this new course that you're putting together. How can people find out about the work you're doing or follow along with it or sign up and join the World on Fire Institute? Because I know there's lots of resources there, especially for lay members of the church who just want to dive, dive deeper and, and grow their relationship with God. Yeah. I mean, I would first of all encourage them to sign up for the Word on Fire Institute. Um, within like the next year, uh, we're going to be creating this module specifically for um, for educators, but that also includes parents and mm-hmm. um, elementary teachers as well. So um, I encourage everybody to sign up. There's this is we're trying to kind of grow this Word on Fire movement. Um, which is all about the new evangelization. So um, if you're really interested in the things that we talked about today um, and also interested in that vision that Stratford Caldegat outlines, um, I hope I encourage you to sign up. Perfect. Sounds good. Well, yeah, so go check that out at wordonfire.institute. Uh, and then you should also check out Robert's blog, robertmixa.com. So you can go go there and you can see the blog post. I'll link it in the show notes, but you can see the blog post we talked about with Sam Maximilian Colby and some other recent ones on uh, deification, divinization, uh, and practical atheism and the call to holiness. So lots of the things we talked about today. Robert, it was great to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining Likewise, me on Creedle. Thank you. Uh, if, for, for sure. You're welcome anytime. And if any of my listeners or viewers want to get in touch with Robert, I'd be happy to, to pass along an email. So you can send me a note, Zach at creedlepodcast.com, and I'll be happy to pass it on to Robert. So feel free to do that. Uh, send me a note uh, and let me know what you thought of this conversation. And let me know if you if there's other content that you want me to, to do or other conversations you want. Uh, maybe we could have Robert back on and, and dive into a topic we touched on today if you want to hear more about that. So just send me a note, Zach at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.